Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2018. Episode 199, Horror Mechanics for More Than Just Horror. Presented by Anne Ratchet, Kenneth Height, Elsa S. Henry, Julia Ellingbo, and Jabari Weathers. Welcome to the horror panel. My name is Anne Ratchet, and my qualifications are I'm a bat. I'm Kenneth Hyde. I'm a tabletop role-playing game designer. Everything I think about horror is in GURPS Horror 4th Edition. Uh, besides that, I've expressed those thoughts in games like Trail of Cthulhu, Knights, Black Agents, and Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. My name is Elsa Shonison Henry. I'm a deaf-blind science fiction, horror, and speculative fiction writer and editor. I've worked on games like Rape 20th Anniversary Edition, Oblivion 20th Anniversary Edition, Dracula Dossier, and I'm the creator of Dead Scare. Hi, I'm Jabari Weathers. I'm a tabletop game illustrator and designer. I've worked on uh, expanded content for Seventh Sea and Bluebeard's Bride, as well as the Dresden Files uh, Paranet Papers. Um, I also try to throw tension and anxiety into almost every aspect of my game design work. My name is Julia Ellingbo. I am a started as a tabletop. Uh, game designer. Um, I've been writing a lot of LARPs lately, um, but I still do campaign frames, things like Lovecraft-esque, um, Mortal Coil, stuff like that. So to start off, uh, we're just going to try to get a working definition of horror, so we have a place to begin. So to the panel, what is horror? Horror is um, the, for me, horror is that unmasking of like societal ills and unrest um, and interrogating things that are going on in our society whether it's something that's deeply wrong or something that is treated as deeply wrong but should be fine. I think there's also a certain amount of um, different kinds of genres of horror because we have the spooky horror which is supernatural, ghosts that go bump in the night, that sort of thing, stalker slasher horror which is the things that break into your house and regular horror, which is the things that you're really afraid of that can come out and kill you. Um, a lot of this all is predicated on the idea of fear and psychological horror and sort of the, um, the, the catharsis of being afraid and being allowed to be afraid. Um, I think of horror as, as that space where you can be vulnerable and you can be yourself and um, the things that you imagine would be the worst that could possibly happen might happen, but the things that you don't expect to happen, like your boyfriend actually being a vampire, are the things that happen, which might also be kind of scary too. And that leads to the question of uh, the horror genre as opposed to horror the emotion, uh, which is uh, things that are contain horrors that once recapitulated or symbolized uh, psychological fears or societal unrest or uh, personal uh, um, uh, uncertainty and uh, anti-wish fulfillment, but are now either domesticated or are treated domestically in the, in the work. So a, a movie or a book or a TV show about sexy vampires is not horror in that it is not intended to promote fear 
or even necessarily do any of those other things, but it contains those genre markers and acts as a signal that within this space you can respond transgressively because the vampire once was the ultimate transgression and even though it is not so much that now, it signals the creation of a space where you can maybe think that the boy vampire is cute even if you're straight male or maybe you can not mind that that guy is killing all those babysitters when if that was in a regular movie you would say this is very misogynist. <laughs> What makes a horror game work? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um... Which I think Elsa was really touching on it, where invite the player to do all the heavy lifting for you. Yeah, um, definitely, definitely inviting mm -hmm. players to contribute mm -hmm. and do a lot of that heavy lifting, and also just a theme of complicity, like making players complicit in that mm -hmm. horror. You're never going to scare, um or almost never going to scare players as much as they're going to scare themselves, mm -hmm. I think. So making sure that if you're designing a game, you give tools to the tables that are running it mm -hmm. uh, to push forward that kind of collaboration, I think is really important. I would say in a sort of high level or generic sense, real character threat is necessary for horror. Can you define what you mean by that? I mean that there has to be a stake in the game that is, I will lose something that I value as a character. And the sort of ur mechanic version of that is the sanity death spiral from Call of Cthulhu, where the more effective you become at understanding the Cthulhu mythos, the lower your sanity goes, and so the less effective you become at resisting the Cthulhu mythos. So you are always making that bargain, I need to learn more to solve this problem, but I'm giving up freedom of action, first of all, because of course as you go insane, the GM takes over your character, or you are forced to play out a specific pathology, and then eventually, yes, your character will have to be sent off to Switzerland, or put down like a mad dog, depending on your player group. And, be, and you know that that is happening because your sanity just keeps marking off and marking off and marking off, and maybe sometimes you go up a little bit, but by and large the trend is very clearly, I am putting at risk the thing that I am literally defending the world uh, the, the world store of. I am defending the world's sanity at the cost of my own. Mm -hmm. And so that notion that you are, it is not a situation where you can go to a, a monastery and get your sanity healed back. That doesn't happen in Call of Cthulhu. The fact that you are literally having your, your real stake in the game corroded is what makes it horror as opposed to adventure. And I think this slightly touches on one of my favorite things, which um, we've talked about this a little bit before, the element of anxiety within a horror game. I find that what the Cthulhu genre does particularly well is when you see something that's going on that other people around you are saying, no, you're crazy, which is honestly a pretty great metaphor for neurodivergence, but that's a different panel. Yes. Uh, you end up in a situation of questioning the reality around you. Mm -hmm. Is this realistic? I see the very obvious threat, but is there actually a threat? Further, is there a threat that I don't see? And so it creates an environment. And what's particularly great about anxiety is what's usually the scariest is things that are not set in stone. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as it's set in, set in stone, you have something you can directly act against. 
one of my favorite methods for that, and I mean, this does get, it can get ugly at certain tables, but shadow play in Wraith, um, when you and your, you set up, so there's a Wraith and then there's their shadow, and the person playing the shadow can really mess with you. Um, and depending on what their shadow is, there are different ways of pressing on your anxiety. And so it becomes a part of gameplay, the way that you relate to each other as players, and the way that your character's internal monologue changes based on that interplay. Which I think also can leave you really rattled when you walk away from a scene and you're like, did that just happen? Why, why did they, what, what do they know that I don't know? which is one of my favorite methods of freaking people out. <laughs> which I, I, I think of losing your agency is also mm -hmm. a scary thing. So as the GM is able to take over your character, you're losing your agency, and so you lose the number of choices that you have to get yourself out of a situation um, to avoid whatever it is that, you know, that, that, set, that thing that's set in stone that's like, okay, that's, that's safe. But as you're losing your agency and you're losing your ability to fight it and, and to even see the thing that's right in front of you that's, that's scary um, and avoid it, that, that becomes the frightening thing. That there's no, like that helplessness, there's nothing you can do about it. It's all gonna come at you and even you know that that's coming, you can't avoid it. I think dread is one of the most effective tools at our disposal. The ability to make people see what's coming and know that they can't do anything about it, and you have to just kind of sit there and feel the fear. Yeah. So how would you craft that in a game? How would you, is there a mechanical way you would create dread? Other than the way dread literally <laughs> does. <laughs> 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 so there's, there's two different, besides dread, how would you do dread? <laughs> there's, there's two different junctures that jump out to me in this conversation, because interestingly, I think just as scary as losing agency is being given agency in, in opportune moments. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and specifically um, attaching that agency to the well-being of everyone else. Mm -hmm. Hey, this yes. might be a really good choice for your uh, avatar in this situation, but it's not going to go well with everyone else. That happens all the time with Bluebeard's Bride and passing the ring. <laughs> like, if you don't want to deal with something, you have the power to like throw someone into that kind of point of view. Uh, the other thing that's really important, I think, is this this kind of emerging theme of expectation versus reality. Having having certain fictional markers set in stone can trip up your ability to horrify your table. Uh, mechanically, but I think it's good to set up certain expectations uh, in order to have them subverted. And that's playing off of tropes, as you'd said. Um, so when you're, when you're making a horror game, starting, starting from the point of view of like, what these tropes are, and then like, giving the GM tools or the like, particular like, second level design a pass of like, how is this subverted, I think is always going to be useful. One of my favorite narrative tricks when writing horror and fiction is the idea of telling people how it's going to end. Yeah, right. Because you know that you're all going to be dead in a matter of days. How that plays out is up to you. The fact that that can actually cause people to feel anxiety and fear is because they know how it's, they don't know how it's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's a really interesting trick. And you could very easily do that mechanically at the yeah, table by saying, absolutely. 
uh, and Jeep form, for example, does that. They'll say, this is the LARP about how you all died. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then they do the LARP, and you're like, uh, excuse me, did I, did you say it died? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and you could easily do that at the, at, uh, in a tabletop situation, whether it's a zombie game where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, you're, you're all going to die, or you do it impli- implicitly, again, in Call of Cthulhu, where the characters know how many hit points they have, mm-hmm. and they know how much damage a hunting horror does. Mm-hmm. And you, the first time that they look in the diary and it says, he called down from the stars a horror that hunts, and you're like, oh, this is not going to end well. Um, and, and, and that is not so much the, the mechanics of the game, but the para-structure of how we play confrontational adventure role-playing being flipped on its head instead of, oh, thank goodness we get to fight a dragon uh, because it's <laughs> sitting on solid gold goodies, but we've all got healing potions and clerics. I have oh, my God, we have to fight a hunting horror. And it's sitting on treasure, but the treasure will also kill us. Expectations versus reality. Right, yeah. yeah. I have watched a table of Call of Cthulhu players go completely sheet white when the GM said, so has, how, do, how do people feel about hounds? <laughs> and, like, the people at the table go, oh, I know what a hound of Tindalos is, and I do not like where this is going. <laughs> there's, a, there's an anecdote that uh, I think is very common in, in Cthulhu play, where the characters are going through the old haunted house and they go down to the basement and they stumble on a crate from World War One and they open it up and it's full of Mills bombs, full of <laughs> grenades. And they're like, did the GM just give us grenades? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now we're terrified. <laughs> because we need grenades. <laughs> and the, the notion of scaring the players with the treasure is, mm-hmm. again, it's a, it's a design... A, a story design thing, not so much a mechanically designed thing, but because the mechanics are designed in such a way that you know how much damage everything does, and that's the level of that certainty that mm-hmm. you know the uncanny would per, would perhaps be better served if you had no idea what hunting horror was and you had no idea what any mm-hmm. of these monsters were, and you're going in blind, except you know that they're terrifying because the GM is providing you all kinds of terrifying clues. But because you, the player, know you have 13 hit points and you know that the hunting horror does four dice six damage. You're like, oh, this is not going to be good. I I will also say, because we've been talking about sort of the other and fear, um, a book that I highly recommend everybody read if they want to include disabled characters in their their games and they are not themselves disabled is Bird Box by Josh Mallerman. It is Bird Box by Josh Mallerman. It is a book that is about uh, a horrible creature type thing that shows up on the earth and if you look at it, you go crazy and try to die. So everybody blindfolds themselves because that's the way to stay alive, which means that all these sighted people are having to be blind functionally in order to live. And it is told from a sighted person's perspective, so it's not taking on the blind narrative, oh, not about blind cool. people, kind of. <laughs> um, <laughs> And there's actually a movie coming out based on it this December, and I really Ooh, recommend wow. it because it um, it does the blindness as horror thing mm-hmm. without being uh, tropey, and it does it without feeling like it is capitalizing on my disability mm-hmm. as horrible. Right. That's a fantastic mm-hmm. way to do that. Yeah. yeah. So I think from here we can all say there's a lot of things that horror does pretty darn cool. <laughs> so kind of to the meat of why I wanted people here to talk about this. What are things you like in horror you would like to see in not just horror? And so I'm going to go with one of mine is I really like the conversation we have in horror of safety versus comfort. 
So if people are interested in talking about that, yeah. I open it up. Oh, but if anyone else also has this other really fundamental thing to making horror work that you'd like to see in games other than horror, please take it away. I, I, I want to extrude on the idea of safety versus comfort and like safety as a means to get people to buy in. Um, earlier, earlier there was um, the mention of like telling players like you're all gonna die at the end of this, uh, and that's like a really effective way of getting people to commit to the fiction because they know how it ends. So even though like you're like yeah I'm gonna be like scared and I'm gonna like go through this like really hellish thing that at the same time knowing those expe that large expectation and being able to like act through that being able to make the decision of like do I want to deal with dying today um, is really helpful. Um, I, I personally also like in horror that I'd like to see in other games um, the power of like asking really implicative questions of the players. Uh, I think that horror does that really effectively of like this thing that you shouldn't look at like you're really fascinated by it aren't you? Let's let, let's take that apart. Let's, let's just like hone in on that little moment um, and I like seeing that in other genres because that's a really fascinating um, means of conversation and a, a very powerful empathy making tool. I feel like there's something in horror stories that captures people. There's that almost suspended quality of when you, you kind of have that dread or that fear that the, you, you can't look away. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you replicate it necessarily in other stories because there is that, when things get really fun and bouncy, it's a little bit easier to get distracted. But there's something really evocative about the way that we focus when we play in horror when we tell a horror story. Like if you sit in a room with somebody who's telling a ghost story, if it's a good ghost story, you you can you could hear a pin drop. And I feel like that's that's a quality in specifically horror storytelling that I'd love to explore how to make it work in other genres. I think that quality of focus would really be helpful in a fairly underserved genre, which is romantic love. Mm -hmm. games because that's the other thing mm -hmm. that taps really deep into an emotion yeah. really is about you the person and what you want and what you fear like Julia was saying and that just as you know tunnel vision if you're facing a zombie or a mutant or whatever and you that's all you're paying attention mm -hmm. to similarly if you're in love and you're looking at the person they're all that you're paying attention yeah. to and all the other people could literally be doing anything yeah. and that level of focus and intent that you're talking about I think that you can take that out of the horror genre and yeah. it has a really strong role in the romance genre, but we barely have romance games anyway, yeah. the, the Blessed Emily Care Boss uh, <laughs> notwithstanding. Oh, um, so a, a game that I've been working on for a, a long time called Tales of the Fisherman's Wife is, you, it was originally supposed to be a sexy erotic game. Then she meant more fishermen. But it just as easily can be played as a horror game um, because there's there's the unknown um, and there's there's that that, that strange tension. Um, there's some of that safety versus comfort. Um, and I think one of the reasons that it does flip that way so easily is that. Um, Everything on the surface is very familiar. Um, and that's what I, I like about a lot of horror, um, that as you sort of pick away at the surface, then, then you see what's, what's actually wrong. So uh, in movie form, there's get out. 
mm-hmm. which, um, if you've ever seen it, I think it probably plays differently to different people. Um, if you haven't, watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you haven't, please do watch it. Um, it I, when I was watching it, I could tell that people were, there were people laughing at different things that I was not laughing at. And people were not laughing when I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Because it was familiar and it was, it, they're, they're, I've been in those situations where people start saying somewhat insulting things to me, um, feeling, you know, this is all well and good. Oh, where are you from? Tennessee. No, no, really, where are you from? I'm Memphis. No, no, really. Where are you from? Where are your people from? You know, the, so that 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 can be a little scary because, like, why are you fucking nosy this way? Like, <laughs> what is it? Do, do you want to like bring me down the basement and steal my power? I don't know. Um, is that but, an option? <laughs> well, apparently it might be. Can, can you steal Julia Ellingbo's power because that opens up a whole new? Yeah. <laughs> no, you can't. Okay. <laughs> we had a question. Oh, I just wanted to, well, one, I was wondering if audience commentary is welcome, because <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, and two, I, just sort of these, these comments about like um, like trying to find a way to get people fascinated the way they get fascinated in horror, where they can't look away. Um, one thing that I think helps with that is like trying to tie the game and the story to like the lower brain functions mm-hmm. of the person, like limbic system mm-hmm. interaction, you know, the anxiety you're talking about. You make if you make the room anxious, everyone gets quiet. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned, everyone focuses, and so I think it's just like pulling on the. You want to embody the players, like how like how a horror movie or how like it, how like a horror movie embodies embodies you because you live in your body in a horror movie. You're experiencing it's the experiencing adrenaline, and so that's kind of a way to design towards that. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you brought up Get Out because um, I've been seeing that there are more horror films that are community specific, and for me, it was A Quiet Place. Mm-hmm. Um, I went and saw that in a room full of hearing people, and one, I wanted to strangle all of them because there were people uncomfortably laughing behind me, and I'm like, I can hear you right now <laughs> because the film is so quiet. Mm-hmm. But it really did show what it's like to be a disabled person in a post-apocalyptic scenario. And there are parts of it that were super scary to me that wouldn't be scary to a hearing person. There are parts of that movie that were not scary at all to me that would have been horrifying to a hearing person. Um, And I think that seeing sort of community-specific horror is really exciting because there are things that we don't know about each other that come from a place of fear that I think we can tell those stories. And I'm excited to see that they're coming out. Absolutely. I'm kind of drawn to the Hannah Rand quote, which is, we can never communicate our suffering, but it's an experience we all share. Mm-hmm. And I think horror is definitely one of those really pinpointed ways we can try to communicate the things that scare us. Um, because it's an interesting balance I've been finding focusing more on horror design recently where I walked in thinking that it was intense emotional investment from the designer and I found more as you go on it's actually more focused on doing emotional labor for your players because the players are the ones who at the end of the day have to do everything they're doing the emotional vulnerability which was mentioned before by I believe it was Julia mm-hmm. yeah um, and at the end, of, like the GM in Bluebeard's Bride, I found in running it when I was trying to be vulnerable to my players, it was less effective 
versus I was there as the self-serving element or group-serving element and let them lead their fears in the way that they felt most that they wanted to push it. I think another mechanical thing that happens a lot in horror games, I mean, it happens in Dread. Uh, it's the part of Dread I actually like. I'm, not a, I'm literally the only person in this building who doesn't like Dread. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I don't like it for other reasons. Right, but um, uh, but I, w one of the things that I really like about it is the character creation. The, you know, the sort of... Those questions. The, those questions. Those questions. And oh Fear Itself has a similar uh, thing where it's like, what's the worst thing you ever did? Is mm -hmm. a question that happens in character creation. Yeah. Vampire, uh, in various iterations, has, has had, you know, tell us your true nature. Mm -hmm. uh, besides horror games, Pendragon, I think, is one of the only other games that actually says, what are the things in your core experience, and this can be your, your life history or it can be your psychological makeup, that are crucial to you, that are really, uh, you know, trauma-inducing, that, that cause, that could cause trauma if touched. And the fact that you can go through a whole heroic arc in every other game without ever knowing your character, anything about them as a, per, as a, as a human, in the sense, whether they're, you know, homo sap or not, but their humanity is irrelevant. But in a horror game, it has to be relevant because, as we're all saying, horror is about tapping into that emotional core, uh, whether it comes from your specific community situation or your specific neurological wiring or your specific you know, fear of rats or whatever it happens to be. There's some part of you that has to get out there. And the fact that it's, I don't want to say unique to horror, but almost unique to horror and should, I think, be sort of praxis in any game that's going to be about the character as a as a as a human entity, that's that's a tech, that's a piece of horror tech that I think can be used, you know, in anything. You could use a no swashbuckling game. Do you like, you know, um, uh, uh, you know what what? Why are you out there swashbuckling? Yeah, that's actually um, that's something that both when I'm jamming and like when I'm designing, I try to do moment to moment, and it's it's kind of um, what I kind of take from horror games is the expectation versus reality notion. Um, a lot of <laughs> When I'm running like D&D five E or like another like adventuring like fantasy kind of thing, like I don't like making the violence comfortable. I don't mind mm -hmm. role playing through that, but like what I'll do like with my players is like, yeah, like so you just like cut down that bandit and like they're like, Yeah, I just rolled a crit. So like you hear them moaning on the floor and like oh. like yeah, like make the violence <laughs> uncomfortable because you're ask you're repositioning the question of like what the context of your actions are. And you can build that straight into the language of your game and the mechanical uh, tools that you're giving to people. Um, I'm, I'm working on an existential fantasy game where I'm taking a lot of aspects of horror storytelling uh, and trying to use that to prompt more uncomfortable cadence in the game by like saying like, yeah, I know people are going to come to this expecting like fighting dragons and stuff, but if I don't make any of the mechanical verbs like strength or dexterity, if I make them all like question or command or like conversational verbs, suddenly any violent action becomes much more examined. You, see, you just have to slow down and look at what you're doing. Actually, and horror makes you do that. Sorry. I, I actually want to go back to Dread for a second because it's pinging something that I wanted to talk about, which is that um, I can't play Dread because I'm visually impaired. And uh, the entire mechanic is being able to do fine motor skills mm -hmm. and not knock over a tower. Um, and that's not a skill that I have. 
And mm -hmm. so for me as a designer, I want to make sure that every genre is open to every player. And that's something that I really struggle with because I have all my horror friends who are like, let's play drag. And I'm like, I'm not doing that because everybody will die in the first five minutes. <laughs> then nobody's going to have any fun because I will accidentally <coughs> knock over the tower if I move my hand when it's on my blind side. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's one of the things that I wanted to mention is that like we should be creating games that are playable by everybody and try to, if we can, hack things sometimes when they're not. Uh, my hack for, for uh, Dread has not come up yet because I haven't come up with something that works. <laughs> I actually have seen, I think it was Bronwyn, mm -hmm. who designed a uh, version of Dread you can play online. Awesome, I will have to check that out because, yes. yeah. I mean, at its simplest, you could just uh, say, how many, I don't know how many uh, blocks are in a Dread Tower, but at its very simplest, you could say, um, uh, if there's 50 blocks, 50 numbers, you roll percentile dice, right. cross yeah. it off. If you roll a crossed off number, the tower falls. At each major turn, uh, you add an extra die. Yep. And so now you're adding, oh, now I have to <laughs> add all these dice together. This is going to be much more likely to knock cool. something down. And if it's a motor thing, I think putting the other players at a similar disadvantage mm -hmm. would be helpful. Just so getting everyone really lit before they You have to like take a, have a shot right. before you <laughs> kill <laughs> So basically, I don't drink and all of the able-bodied yep. people yes. drink. It's hilarious. Suddenly you fix dread. You know, some, some, like a, like a, like a chopstick or some kind of, that's how you have to get it out. So you have to, Push it in some way. That's an extension of you that is coming. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, so you have to close your eyes. Yep. You have to, you oh know, God. or... You have to wear boxing gloves. <laughs> Everybody just has to wear an eye patch. Yeah. Also, Let's not overthink this. Drinking was the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to talk as a pirate. Yeah. But I mean, that's, that's one of the questions that I ask in horror a lot is also, who are you giving a disadvantage to? Because mm -hmm. sometimes when we play horror games, we may uh, unexpectedly be putting somebody at a disadvantage. So that's part of what I was trying to get at, but I'm having a sort of foggy day today. <laughs> I actually had a, a question to that because we were talking about the idea of finding what people personally found mm -hmm. horrifying and also playing to the idea that this might cause a disadvantage. How do we do this without feeling predatory or <laughs> like exploitative? You know, because I feel like, especially with horror, there's a, a lot of risk, especially, Jabari, you were talking about um, like social anxieties mm -hmm. and how yeah. there are a lot of things that can be compressed and that is the source of horror, but the way to use that in a game is to you know, leverage that in a way that might be uncomfortable to players. So how do we sort of bridge that gap? I mean, I think that some of this is so meta that it becomes you know, just best practice at the table regardless, is just you know, build a climate of trust at your table type yeah. stuff. <laughs> there are certainly groups of players with whom if you know that such and such a person is terrified of rats, you don't run a game with rats in it because mm -hmm. it will cause them real psychological right. issues. Uh, if someone, you know, you don't run Rosemary's Baby if someone has just had a miscarriage. Mm -hmm. That's just common sense. Yeah. Um, but there are tables at which, because everyone has been friends and knows each other well enough, mm -hmm. you can pull something that would be uncool at one table or downright harmful at one table, but it's fine at your table. And so much of this is gonna come down to know your table. That, I mean, you can put best practices and probably should put best practices in your game, especially if your mm -hmm. game is going to be something that touches on 
traumatic or potentially traumatic issues. Like if, if you're doing get out the role playing game, you're going to need a long forward <laughs> for white GMs. Yeah. I yeah. promise you. Um, uh, and, and if you look at, at Chris Spivey's Harlow Unbound, there's the whole section on, so you're a white guy who wants to play Harlow Unbound. Yeah. Here's how you can do it. And Chris is super, he's, he's not like, you know, hand-holding, but he's yeah. not, you know, he's saying, these are the minefield, this, this is a minefield, here is my map of the minefield, you know, don't fall. Okay. Um, and, and that's going to happen if your game is specifically about that kind of trauma. I imagine that with Bluebeard's Bride, you probably want to get a bigger buy-in at the table than if you're just playing, you know, yeah. D&D. Mm -hmm. And that's just going to be a natural consequence of horror. Safety tools, mm -hmm. yeah. you know? Like, you, you need to talk to your table. Sometimes it's about literally saying at the top, listen, if you have a trigger that you don't want us to touch at all, write it down on yeah. a piece of paper. We don't have to know who it is, but you can, like, mix it up and read the things. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to probably be starting a Fall of Delta Green game with a bunch of... Uh, Young, mostly younger women, and so there is very definitely going to be the safety talk at the yeah. beginning of what do we not want right. the weird, horrible mythos to touch on. And you know, you also use things like lines and veils, use things like an open door policy, mm -hmm. build that into your game from yeah. the beginning. Use an X card if you feel like that's the best tool for you, but really communicate with your table because it is about building trust. And if it's a new group, that needs to be the buy in at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people will change. Sometimes somebody will have a horrible thing happen to them, and then they need to come to you and say, we can't touch on this anymore. Right, yeah. But it's your responsibility as the GM or as the creator to make it so that that space can occur within your table. Yeah, but the, but the notion of how do we build a game that touches on social or personal trauma safely is you can't, because that's literally the point of the game. And so what you have to do is make sure that the game table is a safe table and then if they're like well we're going to peace out on playing your game because it's too traumatic that's yeah. that's the choice you took when you said i'm going to design a game about trauma not a game about ponies okay. or whatever so or pony trauma moving on to our next question thanks um it kind of gets back to the fundamentals of, of what is scary i guess and how do you bring that into role-playing games but i know you talked uh, a bit about agency and loss of agency and I feel like it's one of the things that role-playing games can do that a more passive medium like a television show can't. But at the same time, role-playing games, there's a certain expectation of agency, you know, the opposite of being railroading. How do you introduce this idea of loss of personal agency into a role-playing game in a meaningful and fun way? Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> okay, so, so my immediate answer is um, you... And this, this, all of all of these questions, like I feel like they really predicate on like having a table that trusts not just yourself but each other. Because a lot of the ways that I can do this, that I can think of doing that mechanically, is like somewhat pitting uh, player actions against each other a little That's bit. That's what shadows are for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, having having the loss of agency come from the other people no. at the table, or coming from your like that player's own decisions. Um, is one way to see some, like, get people to buy into that because they're also like, oh, I didn't see where that was going to lead. Or like, wow, this really led me astray. Or like, the rest of my table is now dead because I <laughs> pushed the button. <laughs> I, I literally had that happen in a dead scare game, actually. Somebody built a bomb to build up, to blow up a government facility that it was making zombies. <laughs> and then they critted on setting a timer. Oh. 
Crit fail, I assume. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so basically the entire table blew up. But the question that I asked them was, would you rather kill everyone in the party or not kill all of the zombies in the government facility? Mm. Mm. Yeah. They got to make the decision of what that. was more horrible. <laughs> I love that. So sort of trying to summarize something that's been said a couple of times, but it's finally hitting me. Um, at least what I'm hearing is that by inviting different players at the table to be a continuance of your character or to in one way or another be reliant. So in Dead Scare you have some sort of found family. Mm -hmm. um, in Wraith you have a person and their shadow. And so in that where you are so fundamentally connected and invested in other people's characters, um, one of the things I try to balance is this idea of having a character taken away from me, because that unfortunately can happen, is in trying to be part of this community, I don't have a voice at all because this other part of me is just so predominantly loud. Part of me is trying to figure out, one, how to balance that well, and two, if you have this buy-in, is it now safe because everyone knows that walking in that they are sharing this person. I think I think the the important distinction is that um, you're not you you don't want to take away someone's ability to react to the events that are there, even if you're putting that character in like a bad position. And I've seen I've seen both approaches where someone will like say like this is how your character reacts to it. I think that's bad. But mm -hmm. if you say this is the situation that you now have to deal with, like. That's a great way to do it. Or, um, I guess, like, what taught me this lesson was like I was in a Call of Cthulhu game in college, where um, my my character went insane. The GM walked me out into the hallway and was like, "Okay, so like you've just like you've nixed on your sanity, but mm -hmm. what what I want you to do is like get I want you to destroy the like all of these protective sigils that are like <laughs> insulating everyone else." He didn't tell me how to how to do it, cool. so I was it was left up to me to like show like how my sanity manifested, and it was very instrumental in like teaching like how I want to design games and how I want to talk with people. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to, to do was just go back in and tell the rest of the party the sigils are drawing all of the monsters to us. <laughs> so they did their job for me, and then saw like what their horrible was I felt really creative and empowered as a player while also horrified at what I was doing <laughs> to everyone. And, I think, um, and it was still good. I, I think that's one of the secrets is that uh, putting a ability to screw another player into the game, just like in a board game or a card game, is easier to get buy-in and I think it works better and feels fairer if every player has the option. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in Wraith, Everyone has a shadow, yep. and you're someone else's shadow. Yep. Mm -hmm. So the fact that your shadow can bone you is made less dire by the fact that you can then turn and bone Carl yeah. uh, <laughs> as his shadow. And so that's... You can do it in a more creative and so that, horrible way. And so that capacity for... In some games, it's not going to be possible for the player to bone the other player. But if... In, for Call of Cthulhu, again, the gold standard, if... You know, you're in a game and it says Cthulhu on the front. You know, going in, there is a really great chance that I'm going to go crazy and maybe kill a guy yeah. right. with my teeth. 
mean, there's reasons why I don't play Call of Duty. Right. Because I'm, I have a mental illness, and I don't particularly right. need to and, do that. And that's, <laughs> and that's, uh, and you've killed many men with your teeth. Um, <laughs> and that's the, uh, but, but that's the, again, we're talking about the way you get people at the table, and that's yeah. the, that's the choice you make when you decide to put Of Cthulhu in. Um, so we only have time for a couple of questions. Who has like a burning, burning question they super want to ask? So what I'm hearing most of all is that making a good horror mechanic is about finding ways to give people bad choices. Yes. 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 I didn't yeah. hear that. Can someone repeat? It's finding ways to give people bad choices. Yes. <laughs> yes absolutely. <laughs> and also sometimes getting them to sort of like those bad choices. <laughs> <laughs> and also, basically, you're not taking away agency. You're saying have all the agents. Yes. Right. Yeah. You're, you're giving people the option to screw themselves, which is, I think, part of the fun. <laughs> and if, if somebody rolls badly in, say, like Apocalypse World and, and any iteration and any horror iteration, one thing I like to do is if they have a, if they fail a roll, they get what they want. Um, <laughs> they get exactly what they want. Oh, no. <laughs> um, and, and there might be, at some point, a consequence to getting exactly what they want. Whereas if they succeeded, they would get what they want and I might explain a little bit more why and this is why it's so great, but maybe I think sometimes we have to remember that we don't always want exactly what we want, that we or we don't need it. Yeah. Complete genre switch, but you just gave me a really great idea for running an apocalypse world game with fairies, where if you mm -hmm. roll a fail mm -hmm. yep. and you're mm -hmm. negotiating with a fae, oh yes, you get exactly what mm -hmm. you want. Yeah, but also, it. now you have a gaius, and that's bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I actually had this happen to me in Bluebeard's Ride, uh, not Bluebeard's Ride, well, uh, Lady Blackbird, mm. okay. where we started off in a jail cell and like this was the first 15 minutes in. I was wanting to get the um, guard to let us out oh, no. and I failed. So he did and then joined our party <laughs> <laughs> because he was completely infatuated with my character. <laughs> and so he did exactly what I said and led us through a lot of these awkward situations, but he would not go away, and he was constantly following me. Oh. And it just like, it was one of those things that it just snowballed where it was great at the beginning. <laughs> and then after those first 15 minutes were over, and we're like, okay, we need to get on the ship now. Yes, where are we going? No, oh. no, no, they're going to track you now, and then track us. You crit failed yourself into a stalker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Every, everyone's had those 15 minutes of great relationship. <laughs> um, the, uh, the, 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 the way to, I, I think, mechanically do that is to make the only time that the dice come out or the only time that a decision forks is when there are clear uh, ways to monkey's paw the choice. Because if you are just asking the GM every time to come up with the monkey's paw answer, that, that's a recipe for GM fatigue and burnout. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's all going to be, oh, and also it's cursed. Um, <laughs> but if you can come up with, as the designer, uh, if you're telling a ghost story, say, and there's going to be four choices that you make, go into the house, um, uh, talk to the ghost, uh, exorcise the ghost, burn the house down. And those are the four choices that you know are going to happen in your game. And this works in story games less well, uh, more well than it does in a more open-ended uh, adventure game type stuff. But each of those choices, it should be possible for you as the designer to come up with the the good, the well, and the oh. And <laughs> if you can pre-build those into the gameplay, that 
those choices are all open to the player and that the oh no gives you a temporary advantage or a temporary thing, you can build those choices in and present them to the players, you know, almost fairly. And then they will choose to hang themselves because they are players and that is what they do. <laughs> so I am going to call the panel here because we have to quickly try to re-record our definitions because of our...